When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News, and now, The Jack Riccardi Show. All right, thank you, Tom. Good afternoon. Happy 5th of July, everybody, on San Antonio's News Talk Station 550 and 1071 KTSA. I hope you had a great Independence Day, and I did, and uh, glad to be back today. Um, We'll talk about all of that coming up. Is anybody missing their cocaine? uh, Is anybody down a bag? Uh, of cocaine. Well, whose cocaine did they find at the White House? What the heck is this? I can't imagine. <laughs> How could? I mean, it's just it. It's mind-boggling. Cocaine at the White House. Yeah, that was the big story. We weren't doing a show yesterday. This is what we would have been talking about if we were on the air. Uh, the Bidens weren't home. They found it uh, in the West Wing. And they, they did an evacuation of the staff. I don't know how many people were working, probably a skeleton crew on a holiday, but they evacuated the White House. And there's no way to really cover that up because when you evacuate the White House, you also evacuate the press corps at the White House. So it hits the news, first that there's a substance and an evacuation, and, you know, people worry, is it anthrax or something of that nature? And then uh, they said it tested positive for cocaine. Um, Joe and Jill were not there. They were at uh, Camp David. Hunter was not there. He had been there as recently as this past weekend, but not on the day they found the cocaine. And Corinne Jean-Pierre said in the briefing today, well, you know, that's an area that a lot of tours go through, uh, people touring the White House. And so I guess the story is going to be that while vacationing in Washington, D.C., and taking a tour of the White House. Somebody was toting along some cocaine, and it just fell out of their cargo pants, you know, or uh, dropped out of their fanny pack. You know, uh, maybe they were maybe they were pulling out their crack pipe, and it, it just, you know, uh, you know, who knows, right? What do you think? I heard the craziest thing I heard last night on I think it was MSNBC was somebody said, um, "Oh, that's obviously leftover from the Trump administration." And I thought that is peak MSNBC right there. When you can take the discovery of cocaine in the third year of the Biden presidency and go, "Oh no, that had to be the Trump people." They didn't say it was Donald Trump. They just said it was from when Trump was president. So we're going to ask you on the JR poll today, powered by River City Oral Surgery. Is the White House cocaine hunters? Is it left over from Trump, or is it something else, like the Corinne Jean-Pierre theory? What do you think? 210-599-5555. Whose cocaine was found at the White House? What's the story? And um, the other question, obviously, is, you know, how soon will Hunter be able to get it? <laughs> I think that's, I mean, I know, I know we're not supposed to joke because he's in recovery, but 
it's just a very, it's, it's, what are the odds, right? I mean, what are the odds? Um, I, yeah, I get, you know, I think the good news is, and, and we should look at the bright side here. I've been watching Joe Biden very carefully these last few years. I, I really don't think it's him. I don't think it's his. So we, we can feel good about that. We can rule him out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove him from the suspect list. So people are starting to ask, how serious is Will Hurd running for president? Remember, Will Hurd was the never-Trump Republican congressman who represented parts of San Antonio and down to the border and that district that Tony Gonzalez represents now. And it's a, it's a swing district. And so if you're a Republican in that district, you're not going to be hard right. But Will Hurd really kind of lost the narrative with Donald Trump and the border wall. He actually voted for most of the stuff that Trump was for. And it's in fairness, he's he's not a guy who uh, did not serve or did not vote as a conservative. He generally did. But he got very caught up in distancing himself or triangulating himself from Trump, and I think he got himself chased out of that district. He he goes around now and talks about how, like, he left Congress because things aren't working and you can't make Washington work. And um, when people say that and then they say, but I'm running for president, I'm like, you were there, so you had a chance to make it work. You were there. I don't really buy this whole. I'm, I'm running. I'm running for president to run against Washington. And now, you, you, if we elect you, we're sending you to Washington. You, you got to work in Washington. That's where that's where the job is. Anyway, anyway, back to Will Hurd. So people have asked, is this serious? You know, is this is he just? trying to get a gig on CNN, or is he re- does he really think in this crowded field of much better-known people, including Trump? Uh, and, and here's what I think. I'm going to tell you what I think, and, and I'm, open to, I'm open to ideas, but, but this is how I answer people when they ask me. Will Hurd will be the Republican nominee for president if that's what the powers that be decide they want. I don't think we're picking the nominees anymore in either party. I, I, I know we have primaries. You should vote. I'm not saying not to. But I think that basically at this point, and this is why Trump was so upsetting, it's pretty clear at this point that the parties have taken in or taken back, I should say taken back because historically it was back rooms and deals and, uh, you know, something the public participated in only ceremonially. And then we had the primaries and people felt like, hey, we're coming out and we're turning out and we the people direct the Republicans or direct the Democrats as to who their ticket should be for president. And these are our choices and we run this process. And I'm here to tell you now I don't think we do anymore. I just don't. Uh, So Trump accepted. You can pretty much figure that the Republican nominee will be whoever the donors want it to be. Now, in the case of Trump, it, it may have to be him because he has so much of a following that they can't do anything about it. But once his period is over... I think they I think they run it. And the Democratic side, you remember how Biden came up with the with the nomination, right? He wasn't winning anywhere, he wasn't leading, he wasn't leading in delegates, he was getting killed in the early primaries. 
all of a sudden there was this collapse of other candidates around him. And I've, I've told this story before. I knew people who were genuinely enthusiastically, I'm talking about Democrats, because I have a lot of Democrats in my family. I still have a lot of people I keep in touch with up in the Northeast. I knew people that were genuinely Elizabeth Warren people or genuinely Pete Buttigieg people. I mean, they, they, they were really excited about these, these people. I never knew any Democrat. I never met a Democrat. I've never known a Democrat who was genuinely pro-Joe Biden, who'd looked at the field and said, I think, I think he's my guy. That was foisted on the Democrats the way they tried to foist Jeb Bush on Republicans. And it didn't work. So Will Hurd, I don't know, probably not. I, I, don't think, I don't think he'd be their choice even if they're making the choice. But more importantly, I think you have to keep in mind that like so many other things in life now, the primaries, which are, you know, the debates are going to get started next month and the primaries are going to get started at the end of the year, beginning of the next year, I think they're performative or ceremonial. And uh, I can be talked out of that, but it's going to take a lot to talk me out of that. By the way, there's, uh, you can always tell when it's a slow news day on cable, when they start talking about, is, are the Democrats going to replace Joe Biden on the ticket next year? with, uh, And then they'll talk about Gavin Newsom or uh, Whitmer or somebody. Th- there is no way the Democrats are going to replace Biden on that ticket unless, God forbid, something happens to him or he starts running way behind in the polls. But right now, he's, he's running fine in the polls. He's, he's, he's looking like a guy that could be reelected, no problem. So they're not going to replace him because they want to win the election. And if they can win it with him, they're going to win it with him. Do, do, do you have any idea how much explaining and spinning they would have to do to just nudge him aside or, or have him come out and say, Hey, on second thought, I I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm too old or I don't feel well. Or, you know, I really like, I really like that Gavin Newsom guy. I've, I've decided I really like him. Let's all get behind him. Do you, do you have any idea how much spin that would be? And, and it's really not necessary if they can win with him because then the people running him can still run him and the country will still think much of the country will still think that he actually is the president. Why would they replace him? Only if he's only if it looks like he's in big, big trouble. You say, well, what about all the stuff that's coming out about the money? What about all the stuff that's coming out about the... Yeah, well, what about it? How do we know that six months to a year from now, the only people talking about that will be the same people that are talking about it now? People that aren't going to vote for Joe Biden, people that didn't vote for him, that would never vote for him. See, that story only matters, I'm sorry to say this, that the whole thing that Comer is investigating with the, the foreign influence, which is clearly corrupt and criminal as hell, but the only way any of that matters is if it starts mattering to people you and I know that normally don't even pay attention to this stuff. So don't get into that hive mentality of, well, everybody knows he's a crook and he's, this is the most corrupt administration in history and it's the biggest scandal. No, everybody doesn't know that. Not every not everybody even knows what happened with Bud Light. <laughs> okay. I mean, the stuff you know and the stuff we talk about, no, everybody doesn't know that. So he's the president. They see him on TV. The band strikes up Hail to the Chief. There's Air Force One. There's the helicopter. He's the president. To, to, to a lot of people, 
He's as much the president as any other president we've ever had. And unless this becomes, in the culture, a, 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 a breakthrough and much bigger conversation, it, it, all, all this will be is another reason for people who don't support him and won't vote for him to say, that's why I won't, that's why I don't. And, um, and I, again, anytime you see Fox or any of these networks speculating about, oh, it might not be Biden next year, that, that, that's a slow news day. They're, they're just filling airtime, <laughs> just trying to get through to the next story. Um, so that, that's what I think. And, I, again, I want to hear what you think about all these things, about uh, the nomination, about uh, Will Hurd, about the cocaine. Uh, there's some news about Bud Light, speaking of that. 210-599-5555. Have you seen the new Bud Light ad? Uh, it came out over the weekend, and um, the official name of it is Backyard Grunts. It's got Travis Kelsey, the Kansas City Chiefs star, in it. It's a bunch of guys grunting as they sit down to have a Bud Light. That That's it. I mean, I'm not even going to play it for you because there's nothing to it. It's just a bunch of guys grunting, and then it says something like, you know, easy to enjoy or whatever. Um, it's like a, this is like a slow motion train wreck watching them try to dig out or come back from Dylan Mulvaney. Is it just me or do they just look more and more desperate? And, uh, they had the ad where everybody drinking Bud Light is a, is a, is an idiot, is a moron. And now these guys are just grunting. And I would be curious to know what Travis Kelsey was thinking. I'm not, I'm not mad at him or anything, but it seems like kind of a weird come back i don't know i'm not sure what i would tell them to do if i was advising them but i don't see anything they're doing uh reversing the damage that they are uh that they have and you know the funny thing about it is really when you look at the for, for all the talk about their sales have declined and their market value has declined it's still a uh it's still the case that they've kept most of their market share they've kept most of their value in other words, three out of four people that were drinking Bud Light before Dylan Mulvaney apparently are still drinking it. So you, if, if we're going to be honest about this, it, it's been an effective boycott, but it's not been an experience that when I hear people on conservative media say, well, you'll never see a company do that again, companies are doing it all the time. This hasn't been one of those, you know, everything will be different from here on out experiences. Yes, they are contrite and they're trying to get their mojo back but i i i think we've got a ways to go i i'm encouraged by the way people have responded to this but you know i think we got a ways to go I, there was a story over the weekend about ben and jerry's which is really a brand that i i gave up on a long time ago i'm just sick and tired of them they're just so shrill and 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 far left big time libs but they uh over the fourth of july holiday tweeted the company did this 4th of July, it's high time we recognize that the U.S. exists on stolen indigenous land and commit to returning it. And see, this is a brand that actually is playing in its lane. I mean, this isn't, they're not Bud Light. The, the people that, that really love Ben and Jerry's will love this tweet. This wasn't like a mistake or, oh, they're in trouble now, you know. They do know their customers. Um, 
I mean, look, ice cream is delicious. I love ice cream. But but people that are making choices based on politics have known for a long time that this is how Ben and Jerry's rolls. And um, when you do this, when you say something like this, you're not thinking this will offend people on the right or this will be controversial. You're making the kind of people that by your brand because of your politics, you're making them very happy. You're reminding them, hey, we're still here. I mean, this this brand backed Occupy Wall Street. This band, uh, brand backed Antifa and BLM. They are anti-Israel. They, um, they're on the wrong side of just about everything you can think of. So, yeah, I mean, a tweet like this is par for the course. I think they've been caught... I, if memory serves me, at one point they were caught using um, some child labor-produced products in their supply chain. So maybe they're trying to, you know, make up or make good on all that. Um, but the difference between Ben and Jerry's and Bud Light is that Ben and Jerry's knows that this tweet, which to you and I looks ridiculous, actually is the way their core customer thinks. Uh, and and we could pick it apart, and we could find all kinds of things wrong with it, including the fact that um, the the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution uh, was um, a rebellion by British subjects against British rule. It had nothing to do with the arrival, you know, a century earlier of the white man to North America. It has nothing to do with that. But the difference here is that Bud Light did not apparently figure out what they would uh, pay, and Ben and Jerry's knows they won't pay anything. Their whatever their market share is today is not going to be affected by this. So, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. I also think these brands are kind of attention whores. I can use that term. I mean, they just it, it's you you've done what you can do with ice cream. I mean, there's only so much you can do. You've done what you can do with light beer there's only so much you can do so now you're you're out of like product innovations there's there's not going to be an improved can or a better container or so you're 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 stuck with promotion basically you know you and all products reach this point you know i've i've worked in radio for almost 40 years radio stations reach a point where there's no, there's nothing else you can do about the music you're playing, right? I mean, you've tweaked it, you've tested it, you've researched it. You're playing the right songs for your target demographic audience. These are the love songs that a, a person between 25 and 34 wants to hear or whatever it is. So you run out of things you can do to your product, and you start looking for ways to, you know, kind of set set things on fire. And And I guess a tweet that becomes a news story is that. You know, maybe it'll maybe maybe we'll sell a few more containers. Maybe we'll have a little more market share. Maybe a few more people will know. Who knows? But if not, this is really who we are. There's this uh, viral video uh, that a lady made um, where she had ordered a pizza through DoorDash, and the pizza came. And I think on Door, I, I use DoorDash, so I should know this. I think on DoorDash, when you order, you you designate the tip. Um, I don't do it a lot, so I may be hazy on this, but it feels like you, you designate the tip and you pick a percentage or you can custom a, 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 customize a number. 
and uh, and that's it. So typically, when you get DoorDash, you're not handing the delivery person anything because you've paid on the app, you've tipped on the app, and if you want to give them an extra cash tip, you can. But typically, you're not. You're just taking the the food and you're closing the door. Well, this someone orders a pizza. The guy comes with the pizza, and you can see him on her uh, doorbell camera, um, and it's kind of a weird encounter. Have you heard it? Have you seen this? Let me play this for you. This is the DoorDash driver and a lady named Lacey who ordered a pizza. Listen to this. Hello. Come here, Max. 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 She's talking to her dog. Thank you. Um, I just want to say it's a nice house for a five dollar tip. You're welcome. This is a nice house for a five dollar tip. And she says you're welcome, either because she isn't gonna participate in his sarcasm or because Maybe she didn't get it with sarcasm. And then he tells her to F herself, which I don't think is how they train them at DoorDash. Never had that happen. Uh, it was a $20 order. She says her tip was $5. What is, what, what's happening with people and tips? What's going on? We talked about this a while back. All of a sudden, like in the last year, tipping has become insane. I, I'm not... I mean, I've been doing this uh, thing called life for a while now. I thought I knew how this worked. I thought I knew what tips were. I thought I knew when and where you tipped, and I, I feel like I'm pretty generous with a tip. I'm not saying I'm, you know, Daddy Warbucks, but I, I feel like I'm pretty generous. I feel like I'm like pro- probably a little above average on the tipping game. Suddenly, everywhere you go, there's a tip. Here's a cup of coffee we're handing you across the counter, and they spin the little thing around. They have little... Little iPad. As soon as they do that little spin move, you know, here we go. Or I like when they say at some of these businesses, um, it's going to ask you a couple of questions. The, 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 no, it isn't. It's going to ask for a tip. It's always that. <laughs> it's going to ask me a couple of questions. It's going to ask me how I'm doing today. It's, it's going to ask me uh, if I'd like an extended warranty on my car. You know, no, it's not going to ask me a couple of questions. It's going to ask me a tip. And we're being asked to tip in a lot of places that we never tipped before or that we were not asked for tips before. And frankly, I don't think you should ever be asked for tips. I think you should give tips wherever you think you should, wherever you feel you want to. I know, I know people make their living, but that's how tips used to work, have always worked. The the customer is always right. There's an etiquette to it, but there's not a mandate of it. And there was this thing we talked about a while back, and we kind of laughed about it, where people were saying that they have tipping anxiety now because they they don't like being pressured. And I think that's silly, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm on both sides of this here, but I don't agree with the spin move, but I also don't think you need to be anxious about it. Just, just put on your big boy pants and don't tip if you don't want to tip, and tip if you do. And you can still decide when you think it's warranted and when you think it's not. Some people don't tip for, like, takeout because they feel like, okay, I'm not really getting service. You're just handing me something across the counter. It's up to you. Um, but it's gotten crazy. It's it's The whole thing is just, like, all of a sudden it's rampant. 
I don't know if it's the technology. I don't know if it's post-COVID. This is one more thing we broke. I don't know. This DoorDash guy is ridiculous. I mean, I don't know. I think a $5 tip on a $20 pizza is fine. And even if you say, well, I would tip him more, it's not like he got slapped in the face. He got a $5 tip. And, you know, if he doesn't like that or that seems unjust to him, he doesn't have to do this job. You know, I, I, I understand there are a lot of jobs that you could reasonably argue the public doesn't appreciate us, we don't get paid enough. I, I, I get it. Either you deal with that or you don't do it anymore. But, the, you know, the, the other thing I thought was, and maybe I'm going too far with this, but do you think maybe, and I don't know how old this this. DoorDash guy was. I didn't get a good look at him, but you think maybe this is the entitlement um, mentality? Like when we were when we were kids, we mowed lawns or we shoveled snow or we um, did whatever we did, or we or we got our first job and we you know maybe we we worked for minimum wage and minimum wage was very minimum, um, and our attitude was not that we were entitled to anything. Our attitude was we were starting out and we were doing a job that, you know, we didn't plan on doing long term and it wasn't meant to be affirming. My first job was in a store. I rang up cigarettes and aspirin tablets and magazines at a little drugstore. I didn't I didn't look for affirmation. It, it, it wasn't like I had a good day at work or a bad day at work. It, it didn't define who I was. It was just to have some money in my pocket. Mainly it was to have some money to put into my car. That took all my money, but you know you don't you, you didn't think you didn't think you were entitled to anything, and you just worked. And then maybe later on, if you became a professional and you developed a career and you've got some sort of skills, you know, then maybe you could talk about people need to appreciate what I do. But but not not you're you're delivering a pizza. There's no shame in it, but there's no entitlement in it. And so is this kind of like participation trophy? thing or is it is it that we've I, I guess I'm I'm trying to look for a cause beyond just the guy is an a-hole <laughs> I mean that could be possible too but is it that we have raised people's expectations to the point where when they deliver a pizza they believe they are entitled to a substantial show of gratitude an affirmation and um and could you get that way if you went through a school system that gave everybody a gold star and let every kid kick the ball in the net and didn't do honor rolls or 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 uh, you know valedictorians or make you know, took all the competitiveness away? Everybody's a star. Everybody's an A. Everybody's tops. And of course, modern parenting. And I'm not saying you did this, but you know, there's a lot of books and advice out there about how important esteem is and you got to build up their esteem and you got to tell them they're special and tell them they're great. You're amazing and you can do anything. And is it possible that we get what we get now because of that? So the DoorDash guy cursing out the woman for the $5 tip on the $20 delivery. What do you think? 210 
599-5555. Can we play it one more time? Let's just listen to it one more time. Hello. Come here, Max. 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 There you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I just want to say it's a nice house for a $5 tip. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Mm. Would you eat the pizza, by the way, now? How would you feel about the pizza after that? I don't know. 210 599 Penny on line one is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Penny. Hey, Jack. I know Emily Post used to say that an appropriate tip is 20%. Now, that's been a long time ago. But this guy is complaining about $5 on 20 That's 25%. That's an yeah. average tip. Yeah. Might yeah, even be above average. Right, right. I don't think he has any room to complain. I waited tables my share in my lifetime, and, and uh, you know, I was always happy for anything that I got, and I was expecting especially happy when I was really tipped well because I did a good job. You know what else I was thinking? when Back when we had mostly a cash economy, Penny, a lot of times tips were like roundups, right? Like if the bill was $27, they'd leave you 30 which is not a very good tip, but but they didn't want to do the math. And and now that people are paying with, with cards, it seems to me that you can. it's really easy to tip more and um they even prompt you they show you the amounts if you want to leave 15 20 25 so these days i I think you're in better shape with tips than you've probably ever been right absolutely i think so too i was just out to eat today for lunch and my uh my ticket was um was 42 dollars and um with my husband and the suggested tips were 18 20 and 22 percent well, I tipped twenty four percent, so I made it an even fifty dollars. So, yeah. Yeah. um, I feel like I did a good job of tipping, and um, you know, I, I think it was appropriate. I guess this guy wanted. I guess he just expected to be given her house. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you want. It sounds like he, he wanted the house. This is a pretty nice house for a five dollar tip. Penny, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, lady orders a pizza from DoorDash. It arrives. It's a $20 order. Uh, she has uh, designated on the order a $5 tip. Uh, when you do that, uh, the driver sees it, I guess. And so he uh, rings her doorbell, hands her her pizza. The dog is barking and jumping around. She shushes the dog. She, he, This guy gives the pizza. His name is Corey. And then he has a little... Uh, as my mother would say, he gives her a little lip <laughs> about not thinking he, he was tipped enough. And uh, she says, thank you, and he tells her to F you. Um, so what do you think about this? And what, what, what is going on here? What, what, what is going on with tips? 210-599-5555. Bill is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Bill. Jack, hello, Jack. I think the rub in the in the in the the recording is when he says this is a nice house. He he's got a distribution of wealth mentality. She's she's expected to pay more because she has mm-hmm. the money. Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't associate it with his service or the value of the product. Mm-hmm. It's oh she mm-hmm. she has more money, so that means she's obligated yep. to distribute more of it. You yep. know, a five dollar tip from a twenty dollar pizza at, at a rundown apartment. 
he would say, wow, these people are really showing me the love. But mm-hmm. he walks into, you know, uh, someone who's doing well. He, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's a mentality. It's like he didn't associate it with his service or the product. Great point. It's, it's, a, it's a mentality. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. I thought that was the most important part of the recording. Yeah. Why are we, why is it like this now? I mean, how did we get to this point? It comes right back to the Victor David Hansen article about why we're all disintegrating. It's everything. We have it so easy. Everything's so easy. And and it's just, it's just, everyone's an expert. I don't know. People are lazy. I, I, I don't want to get that's a that's a really yeah. broad okay question. that's I a big one you make a great problem. point about the wealth thing I think that's an excellent observation bill thank you I would say this too I think that um w- one thing I've noticed and I'm generalizing don't take offense I don't if this doesn't apply to you you know but I'm, I'm noticing that we have forgotten that the concept of side job and starter job when you are starting out when you have your and I don't know again I, I don't know this man but when you have when you have your side gig, which could be DoorDash, Uber, any number of things, when you are doing your first job, you just got hired as a teenager, first time you've ever worked, you're going to work at the, you know, ice cream shop or whatever it is. There's no, you're not entitled to anything. Actually, society is helping you. When you get your first job, y- y- the favor is being done for you. You're being given experience. And actually, that's worth more than whatever it is they actually pay you. When you have a side gig, you are taking advantage of, if you will, an opportunity that exists in our modern economy, right? There's all these side hustles and side gigs, and um, unfortunately, because of our economy, some people need to do them. But that's, that's what they are. They're not for affirmation. We're not... Uh, they're not for showing you the love. They have nothing. It has nothing to do with your value as a human being. Your ability to bring a pizza from the curb to the front door isn't a skill set or a, a highly specialized service that we're all just deeply grateful for. I mean, I'm very grateful when a pizza comes, but you know, I mean, it, it, we've we've lost sight of this, and people are expecting the kind of affirmation that maybe a, maybe a heart surgeon gets or you know or somebody that that rescues people from burning buildings but i mean this is not what it is and it's fascinating to me that we've we've come to this and that this guy like bill says really thought he was a victim in this exchange uh you can join the show at 210-599-5555 in about 10 minutes uh best-selling author steve berry one of our favorite people a uh, brand new book that's racing up the charts called The Ninth Man. Uh, if you love thrillers, if you are a uh, Kennedy assassination uh, theories buff like I am, you'll really like this one. We're going to talk to him. Uh, coming up here, uh, yeah, this DoorDash guy, this thing went viral. A woman ordered a pizza, and uh, it was a $20 order, and uh, it was a $5, or she made a $5 tip on the app. And uh, her doorbell video picks up this bizarre and really kind of crazy exchange with the guy when he delivers the pizza. Listen to this. Hi. Hello. Come here, Max. She's controlling her dog. Max. There you go. Thank you. Um, I just want to say it's a nice house for a $5 tip. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm. 
America in 2023. Uh, 210-599-5555. Matt is on the Jack Riccardi Show on KTSA. Hello, Matt. Hey, Jack. I uh, love the show. And um, just comment on the, the tipping, and I agree it is representative, I think, of unfortunately where we are. And I agree with your last caller. I think his name was Bill about the most, I think, important thing about the, you know, that whole ring doorbell was sizing up, you know, this lady because of her house. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does, oh, maybe she wasn't just house sitting, et cetera. Right. And, you know, so sizing her up for the tip, you know, I mean, how, I, he kind of, kind of reverses the roles of the tipping, right? There's this expectation that never existed before. Yeah. The tip now, um, is, is it's gone from being a gesture made by the customer to being something the the service provider is entitled to. Yeah, and I think I'd go a step farther too. You asked earlier, you asked, you know, why why has this happened? And I mean, I think part of it are the businesses, they're expected to pay, uh, you know, an hourly wage that really is not commiserate with the job. And so guess mm-hmm. what they do? Mm-hmm. Like anything else, pass it mm-hmm. on to the purchaser and yeah. the yeah. You know, the employee says, hey, you make up the difference. I expect this much. I'm not getting paid. So, hey, you're going to pay yeah. me, actually. So yeah. It's getting flipped right back in our laps. So that's yeah. all. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Uh, 210-599-5555. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, again, I, I'm not, I, I think most DoorDash people are great. I use it once in a while. Great experiences. Never had a problem. Um, th- there is there there is a, we've had like a tipping point, pardon the pun, <laughs> about tipping Sometime in the last few years, it's another one of those things we were talking about last week that's really changed in the last uh, few years. The uh, big topic last week was the uh, you know Supreme Court decisions, including the one about racial affirmative action, uh, racial uh, university admissions. And I was reading, it caught my attention because I went to Boston University. I, I have an undergraduate degree, and I didn't go to the law school. I, I now realize I should have. Because I, I could really use a law degree to do this show, but anyway, I didn't. And it says here, Boston University School of Law students are being urged to seek therapy in the wake of several conservative Supreme Court decisions, including the one to strike down the use of racial preferences in university admissions. Fox News says the BU Law Student Government Association is urging students. Uh, to take advantage of available mental health wealth wellness resources on campus in the wake of the Supreme Court decisions. Now, first of all, I'm not making any jokes about mental health and, and getting help and, and the resources. It's a serious thing. But it is for people that have suffered a trauma. It is for people that are in grief. It is for people that um, have a mental health Uh, need to be filled. Disagreeing with a Supreme Court decision is not a health crisis. It is not a trauma. It is not a blunt force injury. The skin doesn't break. The blood doesn't pour. The psyche is not shattered. And especially if you're a law student, can we talk for a minute? You're going to law school. I realize not everyone who goes to law school is going to practice law or practice it in a courtroom, but do you see the irony here? If you as a student 
can't handle a news report about a Supreme Court decision, how are you going to practice law? You're not going to get your way. You're going to be told you're, you lost. The jury didn't side with you. The judge didn't side with you. Your objection is overruled. Your, your tort has been thrown out. I mean, I, it, it boggles the mind that at a law school, hearing a Supreme Court, and by the way, you study Supreme Court decisions. That's a big part of what law school is. You don't just study the ones you agree with. You have to know the, the key decisions. You have to know Brown versus Board of Education. You have to know Roe v. Wade. You have to know the ones that made American history. And you don't have to like them, but you have to know them. Imagine the law students can't handle the trauma of hearing about in their, you know, in current time a Supreme Court decision, and so the the students have to be directed to a place where they can receive mental health care? I just hope none of them are driving for DoorDash. On today's JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, uh, do you think the White House cocaine is Hunter's leftover from Trump or something else? Uh, The line on the White House is it was found in an area where White House tours go through uh, and... You know, they don't want to hear any Hunter jokes over there. So, <laughs> made so many of them. I don't feel like there's any left. I feel like we've, feel like we've um, tapped that well till it's dry. Uh, 210 599 5555. We've been talking about the DoorDash uh, guy. Darren is on the Jack Riccardi show on KTSA. Hi, Darren. Oh, okay. All right. We don't have Darren. Uh, we're working with some technical issues uh, right now, so we're just going to kind of get through those and hopefully figure those out in the next couple of days. I don't know if it's this way where you work, but when you have a holiday in the middle of the week, it's kind of catching up on everything. We're trying to get everything back in order and in good working order again. Hopefully we will. Um, there was a Supreme Court decision over the uh, uh, over the weekend. Not a, Sorry, not a Supreme Court decision, a federal judge decision. Uh, over the uh, holiday in Louisiana, and it was um, the result of a suit brought by a couple of states about how the government cooperates with or co-ops social media companies. And this uh, federal judge, uh, Terry Doughty, I think is how you say the name, um, called it the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history. He was talking about the suit against federal agencies that have brought or were bringing um, and using social media companies to uh, moderate or negate comments and dissent about the COVID-19 lockdowns and whether or not they were necessary. Remember that during that time, we had a debate in this country, really, not just with people that had opinions about lockdowns, but with scholars and uh, people that were arguably just as qualified and maybe even more qualified than the ones issuing the lockdown orders and crafting the lockdown policies, where people were saying, um, this isn't necessary or this isn't the right way to respond to a pandemic. 
So we had a debate, but that debate was absent, was forbidden from certain public squares. And so these two states um, sued, and they got a preliminary injunction where the judge said, if the allegations made by the plaintiffs are true, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. The plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits in establishing that the government has used its power to silence opposition. Now, I agree with that, and you know how I feel, and I think you and I feel the same way about how wrong it is for the government to collude with the private sector to shut people down. And we we all learned in school that the government isn't allowed to censor directly. The First Amendment is specifically about that. So you're right may not be infringed, but that means not infringed by the government. So the politicians have figured out, if we get someone else to do the infringing, it's not us. And so social media companies like Twitter, pre-Elon Musk, and Facebook, Meta, I guess, right, have agreed to do, on behalf of politicians, what politicians can't directly do. And obviously, you and I think that's wrong, and we think that's dangerous. But, you know, I keep coming back to there's a part of this that worries me more than anything. Because I know why politicians want to silence dissent and opposition. And if you think about it, deep down, they probably always wanted that. Part of this that's scary is not what politicians do or try to do. It's not even that companies would willingly give themselves over to the Biden administration or the Democrats. The scariest part of this is when you hear our own fellow citizens, people that are in the same boat as we are, actually say, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I'm really afraid of misinformation. And it's really important that that the government, they say, moderate content, strike down claims or uh, arguments that are dangerous or unproven. I mean, a lot of the stuff the government did was dangerous and unproven. And we have reams of data that show that the lockdown approach not only was not very effective against COVID, not only was not uh, warranted by the symptoms of COVID, but most importantly, did a lot of harm. You're not supposed to, you know, burn the village to save the village. But we did a lot of harm, we did a lot of damage to people of all ages, including children. And we did a lot of damage to our economy, and I would argue even to our society, to just sort of like societal norms. But the scariest part is when I hear people that are not in power, they're just like you and me. And yeah, they may have different politics, but they're in the same boat we are. You know, you can you can be a lib, you can be a lefty, but you're, you're in the same boat I am. You've got to do the same things i got to do. And they actually welcome They're saying, bring it on, we want more of it. Censorship, control, speech policing. We don't want people arguing with their overlords. It's it's scary. I I think we have to ask ourselves some hard, just like I was asking before, how did we get this, this DoorDash guy? 
You know, is he just a jerk? Is he a symptom of something that's changing? I think we have to ask ourselves, where did we get these fellow Americans who, um, with no apparent benefit to them, because again, if a senator, if a president, if a governor wants to shut down stuff he doesn't agree with, I I get why he wants that. You know, I I get it. But when our own fellow citizens say, yeah, I don't think you should be able to argue with what the government has ordered about COVID. What are you talking about? Where did you get that? What has government done that has made you trust them totally? Are you saying that that's a power you're happy to have in the hands of whoever is president, of whoever is in charge? Not just who's in charge now, but anytime? Have you thought this through? You have, you have any idea how bad that is, that idea is around the world? How, how un- unlivable that concept is all around the world? That, that, that is why people come here? That's the scariest part of it, really, that that people are like, yeah, we want this. That the ACLU, which when I was a kid, the ACLU was always arguing on behalf of the one lone wolf troublemaker, the one guy that didn't agree with this or raised a voice against that. That you'd always find the ACLU right there. And now their, their position on everything is we side with the government, we side with the people in power. They've completely changed what they are. They're not, they don't mean anything like what they meant 30, 40, 50 years ago. And to, but to hear people say, yes, I want more of that in America. Wow. What do you think this means? According to an, a new analysis of the Census Bureau data by the Pew Research Center, we now have a record number of Americans who have never been married. The number of 40-year-olds that have never been married, it's about a quarter of them, is the highest it's ever been uh, since this number was first recorded. A quarter of 40-year-olds have never been married. These are people in their 40 to 44-year-old range. Um, The trend of delaying marriage or foregoing it altogether has been going on for a long time. In 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married. Now it's about a quarter of them. What do you think? Are people not getting married because they are living together? Are they not getting married because um, they're waiting? Have they been married? Like I don't know if in this data, I'm assuming this data probably includes people who aren't married, um, you know, now, but it doesn't mean they'll never get married. By the way, this is not divorced people. Okay, these are people that have never been married. A quarter of people, 40 to 44. Uh, Men, much more likely than women. 28% of the men in this group, compared to 21% of the women, fall into this category. Um, I, I, I... I guess if you're not married by 40, you still could get married, but I would also think the the odds of that go down, right? I mean, at that point, two things. At that point, maybe you've just decided it's not for you. And also, maybe at that point, um, 
you're you're not considered a good catch. So maybe it's you, maybe it's how people see you. What do you think is going on here? I will say one thing about marriage that I'm not an expert. I'm the opposite of an expert. <laughs> you should not take any advice from me. One thing I will say, and I think I'm pretty I'm pretty solid ground with this. Um, the first thing you know about marriage is your, the marriage you grew up with. If your parents were married, the first marriage you know is their marriage. That sometimes becomes the most important marriage you know. That sometimes becomes your definition of marriage. Like how they were married, how they treated each other, how it worked or didn't work. That becomes your definition. That's your Wikipedia entry for marriage. It doesn't matter that we all know deep down we're not going to have that marriage. You, 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 that's the one you think of first. That's the one you know. If people aren't getting married and choosing instead to live together or just hook up, then won't that maybe mean there are more young people who also won't get married? So maybe the 40-year-olds of today that aren't getting married grew up without a married household, some of them. Is that what's going on? Does it seem to you like marriage and having babies are both things that we have complicated? I had this discussion a while back with a friend of mine because we were talking about our parents and we were kidding. We, we both We both grew up in the same neighborhood and, you know, with, parents who were the same and um he still lives up there and i'm down here but um we were talking about how our parents when when they had us they didn't think they needed to read a book about it or take a class about it i mean there were no obviously there was no internet um they just kind of rolled with it like okay now we're having a baby and we're we'll, we'll know what to do i mean everybody knows what to do I mean, if other people can have a baby, we can have a baby. If other people can raise a boy, we can raise a boy. They, they didn't. They didn't think of it as like, oh, wait a minute, this is life changing. I need to, I need to 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 take a class. I need to get a book. I need to take a, no. And and they just figured it out. Probably, in some good ways and some not good ways, but you know. Now, people have a baby. Oh. Got to take the the new parent class. Got to uh, here's a book. Uh, here's a here's an online uh, uh, webinar. You know, I'm not I'm not against knowledge. I'm not against I'm not anti expertise. But I mean, we've we've made people anxious. We've made people think this is a skill I've got to learn. When actually, a lot of it is intuitive, and it also makes people afraid to do it. And I hate that there are people that have talked themselves out of either marriage or childhood, a, ch- a child raising, because oh, I'm not cut out for that. I couldn't. I'm not right for that. I couldn't. I couldn't do that. You hear people say it, and and it's sad because the, it's probably not true. They probably are okay. They probably could do it, but somehow we've built it up into a um, this sort of specialized thing. That, well, you know, not just anyone. Yeah, actually, just anyone. <laughs> if you if you come at it with love, you can do it. 
And you might even be able to do it without a book. Not that a book will hurt, but, you know, I'm just saying. I wonder how much of this is people just sort of getting anxious and apprehensive. Oh, I don't know. It's it's this big step. I was talking with my mom yesterday. I call her every day, but we had a little bit of a longer phone conversation yesterday because it was the holiday I wasn't working. And so she likes to just kind of reminisce. And somehow we got on the subject of weddings. And she was in a big family. She was the youngest of seven. So she was in a lot of weddings growing up. She was part of all the weddings of her sisters and brothers. And all of the weddings in her family were at the local church that they went to in the neighborhood. And then the receptions were in the backyard of the family house. My my grandparents had a little house. It wasn't anything amazing or impressive it was actually in an industrial area their their backyard backed up to a like a warehouse where where the property line ended there was a little strip of asphalt and then there was a like a prefab one-story warehouse right there so it's just a regular old backyard kind of sloped and hilly and a couple of trees and um all the wedding receptions were back there and it was very informal she was telling me about how People would just bring platters of whatever they made and somebody who was good at cake baking baked a cake and they had paper cups and they had soft drinks and probably some wine or champagne. But it was just in the backyard and it was just, it sounded, as she was describing it, it sounded really nice. Like I've never been to a wedding like that. Because now you got to do a big production. Oh, we got to have a hall. We got to have a facility. We got to what's the theme of the wedding? You got to have a theme. What's the color going to be? You got to have a And I mean, I'm not mocking it and don't don't take this the wrong way, but again, it was very simple. It was very homey. It was family and friends just gathering, just celebrating. Everybody was just having a good time. They would, you know, the kids would play in the yard. They'd get grass stains on their pants. Maybe there'd be, uh, you know, maybe they'd play badminton or croquet or something if the weather was nice. They just had it in the backyard. And nobody expected it to be any more than that. And nobody was, like, scandalized that that's all it was. What? In the backyard? (laughs) Paper cups? What? They never had a DJ. They didn't have a band. Maybe somebody put on a radio. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. This stuff, what I'm talking about marriage and, and raising kids, this stuff was done by people that were just regular people. If anything, with less of an education than the average person has now, they just did it. They knew it was their time to do it. It was the next thing in life. Okay, I'm ready to do this. I'm just going to do it. Everybody around me is doing it. I'm going to do it. And I I wonder how much of the statistics that we see today are about hesitancy, which in turn is brought about by this idea that you, you may not be ready. You may not be qualified. You may not have enough training. You may not have read enough books. You may not have watched enough videos to, to get married or to have a baby. A baby! Like you're bringing home a nuclear device. Analysis of Census Bureau data says uh, there's never been so many 40-ish-year-old Americans who were never married. 
Uh, it's the highest number we've ever had. It's more than a quarter of all the men in that age group and just under a quarter of the women in that age group. What do you think? 210-599-5555. David is on the Jack Riccardi Show on KTSA. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? You know, we just had a conversation about how people are over-anxious about tipping. I'm not surprised that they'd also be over-anxious about getting married or having children. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that there are other causes probably that feed into that. I think the the prevalence of kind of the, the hookup culture feeds into that a little bit. Um, and then, you know, I know that there are political forces who, who would seek to de-emphasize the family so that, you know, people are more comfortable with the state taking on those roles. You know, the whole mm-hmm. it takes a village. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's probably what, what feeds into this phenomenon. Well, I don't want to be a—I don't want to be a, a, a sour grape here, but I'll say this: if you're in your 40s and you've never been married and you don't have somebody in your life, and your plan is that the village will take care of you, <laughs> I think you have a terrible plan uh, because yeah. that's not going to happen. I think you better look into long-term care insurance or something like that because uh, you, you you will be alone and you will need some help. Probably. But uh, your your grandmother's story is great, but I don't know if anybody has those backyards anymore. Now we've all got tiny little postage stamps. I don't know. I think I think there's still. I, I mean, I guess also mar- weddings are way bigger now, right? I mean, like probably that wedding that was probably fewer than a hundred people, and now if you if you don't invite at least two hundred people, you, you've committed a, a a crime against humanity, right? But the food is probably better. I'll bet it was. I'll bet. I'll bet people had a genuinely better time. I mean, you, you, the reason guys don't want to go to weddings now is because it's like going to a corporate dinner, you know. But but probably back then you were with people you knew and liked, and like you said, the food was good, and you were sitting in the lawn chair under the tree. You were comfortable. You weren't all dressed up. Sounds better to me. Well, if you decide to have one of those, uh, I'll attend. All right, I will, and I will invite you, David. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you for calling our show. Uh, 210-599-5555. Yeah, I was, I was telling a story about the, the weddings. This is, we're talking like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So, you know, um, I realize we're not going back to that. But uh, if, if you think about the attitude toward marriage, which was that, of course, I'm going to get married, and most people do, and... um. It's the next step, right? It's part of growing up, and um, it's it's a prerequisite for things like starting a family and getting a home. It's looked upon favorably by employers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've gone from that to um, the census data showing that we have an increasing number of middle-aged people who've never been married. By the way, I'm not pushing marriage. Marriage has its pros and cons, and not every marriage will be a happy one. And yes, just because you marry someone doesn't mean you'll be taken care of in your old age, because you may not be. But um, when you look at the the growth of this never-been-married number, you just kind of makes you think, or maybe, it, maybe it's just me, but it makes me kind of want to turn it around in my head and play with it a little bit. Like, well, why, why would that be the case? 
And I remember when I had my daughter finding out that I, because I, I was one of those people that thought, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't have kids. And really believed that and said that to people. How come you've never had any kids? You know, but turns out you can. And it, and it, and it comes to you. And your intuitions are right 99% of the time. And we have turned what used to be just life experiences. Everybody does it. Don't build it up into something it's not. You'll be fine. We've turned life experiences into some sort of expertise. Like, don't do that until you've taken some classes or read a book or you need to get some guidance. You know, is that is that really better for people? I don't know. What do you think? Is the White House cocaine hunters... Leftover from the Trump era or something else? Your opinion, please, on the White House cocaine. So many jokes, so little time. Uh, There was a brief evacuation of the White House a couple of days ago. A hazmat team was summoned. Didn't know if it was some sort of bioterror attack or something of that nature. And um, they tested the material, the substance, which was found in the West Wing, and uh, it was a white powdery substance. It was in a library uh, room. And uh, it was cocaine. President Biden and Jill Biden were at Camp David at the time, as was Hunter. And uh, the White House today said that uh, the cocaine was discovered in a part of the White House that frequently is uh, where tours are taken through. I guess suggesting that, you know, the, the riffraff American people dropped it when they were passing through the White House. I don't know. I mean, uh, Noah Pollack on Twitter said if, if the hamburglar lived at the White House and all the hamburgers got stolen, would the Secret Service be like, we just don't have any leads, we just have no idea what happened, the hamburglar. <laughs> Politico.com is a headline. White House cocaine culprit unlikely to be found. Yep, just no leads, no idea what could have happened there. 210-599-5555. It was a slow news news day today on the cable channels, and the reason I know that is because at least a couple of them started talking about, oh, I wonder if the Democrats will uh, push aside President Biden next year and nominate uh, Gavin Newsom or Gretchen Whitmer. Because they're so charismatic and great leaders and uh, the future. And uh, Look, um, Joe Biden didn't get old. He was old when they picked him. The key to Joe Biden is you've got to understand who picked him. We didn't pick him. Peter, people, Peter, people uh, participating in the primaries in the caucuses of the Democratic Party didn't pick him. They were emphatic. They didn't want him. They made it pretty clear. Yeah, we know him, not interested. We'll take a pass. And then all of a sudden, it was him. And the people that had been running ahead of him were quitting the race and endorsing him. That's how you know a deal was struck. That's how you know he was selected, not elected. And that's, that's how I think it actually works. It just happened a little more egregiously in 2020. But I, I, I'm really not too sure. I can't prove it. Feel free to push back. We can talk about it. I'm not too sure we're making those choices anymore. 
I mean, you should vote in the primary of your party or whatever in your state, and I'm not saying don't. I will, and you should, and all that stuff. But, but I mean, um, think about it this way. Reduced to its most basic element, a presidential nominee of the Republican or Democratic Party is an investment. It's a product decision. Do you think companies let their customers vote on the design of a product or the name of a product or the whether or not to introduce the product? Do you think do you, do you think any company that has money on the line would would trust that process? They might pretend to, but they wouldn't really. It's an investment. We got to we got to do this right. We got to get this right. The big money donors in the two political parties want to get this right. They want to win. They want something for their money. We can't leave it up to people that maybe aren't paying attention or get their head turned by the wrong qualities in a person. You know, I mean, have you ever noticed that the really popular people in the Democratic and Republican Party, like the most likable ones or the ones with the best senses of humor, they're nowhere near being president. So, I don't think we're picking them. Trump is the exception because people got so worked up uh, about him and became so passionate about what he was saying and what he represented that they they kind of stormed to the gates, they kind of overrode what I'm describing. And part of the reason so many establishment Republicans are just in such a snit about him is because they want that control back. This has been very inconvenient for them, and they're now afraid he's going to lose, and he's not who they would pick. I don't know who they would pick, by the way. I don't have a theory, but I'm just saying he's not who they would pick. And uh, they pick people that they think are winners and that, that will listen to them, that will that will remember who you know to dance with who brung them. Right? Which is not totally a bad thing, doesn't mean we'll never have a good president or an effective president. It just means that that's, that's a decision being made beyond us. This started because somebody was asking me, or a couple of people have asked me, how serious is Will Hurd running for president? And I don't think very serious. Like, for example, the other day, Will Hurd was campaigning on the border. He was talking about the border. He was talking about the crisis and the danger of an unguarded border. But the border he was talking about was the northern border. He was talking about the need to protect New Hampshire and Vermont from an unenforced Canadian border. That there have been illegal immigrants, there have been encounters with illegals, and the numbers have been going up on the northern border, which, by the way, I'm sure is true, but it's literally like one-twentieth of the numbers we have on the southern border. So a guy like Will Hurd would be the nominee of the Republican Party only if that decision is not up to us. And maybe it isn't. I don't know. I still don't think it'll be him, by the way. But uh, Speaking of Hunter Biden... Uh, according to the Daily Mail of London, one of the prosecutors involved in the plea deal for Hunter Biden 
once worked directly for Hunter's business partner. A prosecutor who signed off on the documents charging Hunter with tax and gun crimes previously worked for one of his businesses. Derek Hines, on his own LinkedIn account, shows that he previously worked as special counsel to a company called Free Group International, a lobbying and risk management consultancy that teamed up with Hunter on overseas business currently under scrutiny by lawmakers. The name Free comes from Louis Free. He was the FBI director under uh, President Clinton. I think it was President Clinton. So they're saying that's a conflict of interest, but the thing that kind of jumped out to me was I thought Louis Free was a pretty solid guy. He was an actual FBI agent who became an FBI director. He was, by most accounts, one of the better ones we've had since J. Edgar Hoover. I'm not surprised that he would have a private company. But if he's working with Hunter Biden, that's just kind of depressing, right? It was also a story, uh, this was from USA Today, um, that says that in an email from uh, the Obama White House scheduling a call with a Ukrainian official, they looped in Joe Biden, because he was the vice president to Barack Obama, but they also looped in Hunter Biden. White House scheduling email sent May 26, 2016, disclosed by the National Archives in response to a Freedom of Information request. So it's one thing if Hunter Biden is going around telling people who he is and who his dad is and how he can get access, and that's bad enough. If the Obama White House was treating Hunter Biden like he was seriously someone that needed to be notified and included, and we don't know if this was just one time or this is the one time that we know of, that's like a different story, right? And it probably happens a lot. I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Hunter Biden story to me is that I don't think Hunter Biden did anything that we haven't had done before. It's just that there was an audacity and a hubris to the way he did it, and he's also really stupid. But if you think about it, somebody with more discretion and uh, like something more on the stick, as we used to say, would, would, would easily get away with what he did. They were greedy and they were stupid. And he's the president's son. That's too close. He has no skills. He had no justification for who he was doing business with or even what the business was. He doesn't represent an expertise or a skill set where you could say, well, of course somebody in China or Bulgaria or Ukraine would want it. No. But when you get right down to it, he's just a dumber, more um, greedy version of what we probably have already had. That's depressing, I know, but that's what I'm doing tonight. I'm, I'm coming up with depressing thoughts. <laughs> and they're not all depressing. We actually, you know, uh, coming up, we're going to do one of our little uh, time travels to the year 1983. We're going to look at the top ten uh, songs from this week in 1983, which you're going to love. Uh, that's coming up. We've got the JR poll open for business. I noticed a lot fewer fireworks in my neighborhood than usual. 
How was it where you live? I mean, I'm talking about, I'm talking about like uh, places that do aerial shows. I'm talking about just like people setting them off in the street and in the front yard and stuff. Didn't seem like very many this year. They were kind of spread out, though, too, because some people did fireworks over the weekend. I heard a few like Sunday night. I heard a few Monday night. And then there was, you know, so I don't know if it was maybe dispersed because the holiday fell on a Tuesday. Uh, but I also read, speaking of the, the big shows, the ones that are over major cities or theme parks, I, I read somewhere, I don't have the article in front of me, that the new thing now, it's, it, it's starting to replace actual, uh, you know, shells and, and, uh, fireworks, uh, I guess you'd say, you know, like the, the old style actual explosive, illuminated fireworks. The new thing is now drone shows. Have you heard this? So they can create the look of a light pattern or whatever with these choreographed uh, drones. And I know I sound like I hate modern stuff, but boy, that just <laughs> that does not sound like an upgrade. Uh, that just sounds dull. I'm sure it's impressive and it's probably very precise, you know, but we're we're probably going to miss actual fireworks if this is where we're going. Oh, you know why? Apparently fireworks are bad for the environment. Yeah. Everything we like is bad for the environment. In fact, if you don't if you're not sure about something, ask here's a simple question in case you're not a scientist, not that they are. Just ask yourself, is this something I enjoy? Is this something that brings joy to me? Brings pleasure to my life. If it is, it's bad for the environment. That, that's you, you can be, you can use that simple home test to determine if it's something you should stop doing or enjoying, or that will eventually be taken away from you. Right? If we enjoy it, it's bad for the environment. This was kind of interesting. I don't know how much of the foreign news you follow, but there's there's big rioting going on in France. It's been going on for several days. And there was a police shooting uh, in France of a Muslim immigrant teenager. So it it has sort of a familiar ring to it, right? And France has, because of unfettered immigration and asylum policies, now France has a kind of um, divided or segregated immigrant community and experience that means when there's uh when the chips are down or when there's trouble they're not a cohesive society anymore um and they're not too happy about it as they're realizing that in recent years but anyhow the the rioting has gone over several nights thousands of cars have been torched uh buildings have been torched uh the the president of france is um pleading with social media companies to censor the coverage of the rioting. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. So that's what's going on. Now, here's what I, I read that I thought was interesting. There are accounts of, um, you know, so all the police are out, riot police, every night is a crisis. And um, there are accounts of what they're calling anti-thug brigades, in some of the other cities, not Paris per se, but some of the smaller French cities, where people are banding together, young men are banding together, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, 
Uh, they wear hoods and masks. They are grabbing rioters, zip-tying them, and handing them over to the police. Others in the same bands of men have been uh, defending private property and extinguishing fires. Uh, according to one of the French papers, a member of the group who did an anonymous interview with a journalist said, we're not revealing our identities, but we're the good guys. And this came together spontaneously because we wanted to protect our cities and we were sick of what we were seeing on television. Does that sound familiar? And does this sound familiar? The response to the anti-thug brigades is that this is vigilante justice. We can't have this. We're a civilized society. We're a, we're a law and order country, the politicians are saying. We can't, we can't have citizens taking matters into their own hands. The interviewer asked if the group had any far-right connections, and a member responded, no, we're just people that want to save France, because France is going to hell. They asked, well, what is your position about the shooting of this Algerian teenager? And the person responded, we don't have a position on that. Um, but w we think that that shooting is being used as an excuse for rioting and looting, which it probably is. We're patriots who love France. And if the rioters only had trouble with the government, we could understand that, but the attacks on people and private businesses and looting is unacceptable. Does that sound familiar? So two things kind of came to my mind. I'd like to know what you think. W one is I was very encouraged to hear this because we tend to think that places like France represent lost causes of Western civilization. If this is really happening, even on a very small basis, this is a flicker of hope. This is a sign that not all is extinguished. But the other thing I was thinking of, being kind of a buff of history, was wasn't the French resistance during World War II, wasn't that citizens taking matters into their own hands? I, I mean, where was the denunciation of that as vigilante justice? How dare they? You need to leave the fighting to the French military. What are you doing? The French military uh, surrendered within the first three minutes. Oh, well, you, 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 still, you shouldn't be out there. What are you? What is the meaning of the? You know, there's actually a tradition in every civilization of people backstopping their own, basically their own governments. Like, yes, w we would like to think that the normal rule of law works, and we're glad to stay out of the way of it. We want to stay out of the way of it, right? We want to think that we don't have to get involved. We would rather not. But history is full of times when, if it isn't us, who will it be? Who, who, who's going who's gonna to do Who's going to blow up those Nazi supply lines? Who's going to sabotage those trains? Who's going to um, sabotage those munitions plants? Who's going to tie up the looters and rioters and turn them over to police? And by the way, that's all they did. They weren't, 
I thought vigilante justice is when you were your own police and court and executioner. They, they still deferred to their own government. They still deferred to their local authorities. It's the Music. 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 Top 10 board. We'll start with number 10. We're in the summer of 1983. I don't know about you, but that was the summer between high school graduation and starting college. I remember taking a road trip up to Canada with a friend of mine that summer. And this is the top 10 for the week ending... July 5th, 1983. So we're in July 1983. The number 10 song in the country this week in 1983 is by the band The Tubes. She's a beauty at number 10. Waybill of the Tubes and Steve Lukather of Toto wrote this song. This song is based on an actual experience Steve Waybill had. He went to the red light district in San Francisco and talked to a girl who was uh, a sex performer and uh, was kind of talking to her about why she did what she did. And uh, they kind of tell that story in the music video for She's a Beauty, which you may remember from MTV. It was uh, directed by the same guy that choreographed the movie Dirty Dancing. She's a Beauty, the tubes at number 10. The number nine song in the country this week was Michael Jackson's fourth hit off the Thriller album, Wanna Be Starting Something. The song was on its way to its peak of number five, this week at number nine. This was a song that was actually written years earlier. It was supposed to be on the Off the Wall album uh, and wound up on the Thriller album instead. The number eight song, another big 80s act, was at number eight this week in 1983. Daryl Hall and John Oates and Family Man. good song. You don't really hear it anymore. Family Man by Hall & Oates. Number seven this week, 1983, was by the British group Kaja Gugu, Too Shy. was their biggest hit, and it has a great story behind it. The uh, lead singer of Kaja Gugu met Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran while serving him at a bar and told him, I have a group, and we're trying to get started, and, and Nick Rhodes wound up producing this single, Too Shy. Number six this week in 1983 was by the band Sticks. It was Don't Let It End. Sticks is starting their 2023 tour Friday night in Milwaukee. They don't have any dates in Texas as of now. Uh, we're in the uh, 
First week of July 1983, we're up to the number five song that week in 1983. It was Sergio Mendez and Never Gonna Let You Go. Famous uh, couple, songwriting couple, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil wrote this song. They first offered it to Earth, Wind, and Fire, who rejected it. Then they offered it to Dionne Warwick, who did record it, but did not have a hit with it. And then it was picked up by Sergio Mendez, who often would uh, retrieve songs other artists had rejected. And he needed a ballad for his new album and uh, had it rearranged. The singers, I'm often asked who sings on this song. The, the girl singer is Lisa Miller. And the uh, guy singer is Joe Pizzullo. Never gonna let you go. A few years ago in a survey, this song was chosen as the most complicated pop song ever to be recorded. You ever want to win a bar bet? Uh, That was number five. At number four, uh, probably my favorite uh, song by this group. I think it's one of their most enduring ones. Culture Club and Time. Boy George and Culture Club at number four, down from their peak of number two with Time. This week in 1983, the third biggest hit was by the band The Police. It was also the biggest hit they ever had. Their only number one hit in the U.S. of A. Every breath you take. Since 2019, this has been officially recognized as the most played song in radio history. It took over from the You've Lost That Love and Feelin' by the Righteous Brothers. Uh, According to the people that publish music and keep track of royalties, every breath you take for the last four years, most played song on the radio. By the way, kind of a cool background story to every breath you take. Um, Sting wrote it um, at the desk of Ian Fleming, the guy that wrote the James Bond novels. He was he was trying to get away from the, you know, get away from it all and do some songwriting, and he was able to borrow the Golden Eye estate in Jamaica that had been uh, at one time Ian Fleming's estate, and he sat at literally the same desk Ian Fleming sat at to write some of the James Bond novels and produced this one, Every Breath You Take. It's at number three this week in 1983. The number two song... In 1983, is Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue.
It's one of those songs that was really helped by its video, I think, really made it a big hit. I mean, it's a great song, but it, it, it I think, was certainly made popular. Uh, Eddie Grant was in a uh, British band called The Equals that had a big hit in the 60s called Baby Come Back. And there really is an electric avenue in the south of London, the Brixton District. It's called that because it was the first street to be lit by electricity. So Electric Avenue was at number two this week in 1983, which gets us to the number one song. This week in 1983, the number one song had been number one for six weeks. It's Flashdance. What a feeling. We just lost her last November. Great lady, beautiful singer, beautiful lady. Irene Cara and Flashdance, What a Feeling, a song that was written for uh, the movie Flashdance, and uh, the songwriters actually watched a scene uh, that the director wanted a song for. It was a scene where um, the main character is dancing at an audition in front of a group of judges, and they wanted kind of an anthem-sounding, you know, you can do if you dream it, you can do it kind of song, and... They came up with Flashdance, What a Feeling, wrapping up its sixth week at number one this week in 1983. All right, on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, is the White House cocaine hunters? 78% said yes, it's hunters. Is it leftover from Trump? No one, no one thought that. Is it something else? 22% prepared to believe that it's something else. Neither the... Neither the Trumps nor the Bidens, cocaine. So. And um, I'm going to leave it right there because any other joke I would tell would probably just be a repeat of one you've already heard. Yeah, but we were uh, we were talking about the the Irene Cara song, um, and I, I I had forgotten about this. I started thinking about it today. It was just it's a great song. It was it was a beautiful part of the summer of 1983. Iron ironically, um, that song. It was such a good song that the record company released it before the movie came out. And it, it was a hit before anyone had seen the movie. It helped promote the movie and uh, the movie Flashdance. But that song also revealed to Irene Cara for the first time in her career that she was being cheated. She wound up having to sue her record label and her management because the success of Flashdance, what a feeling, sort of made her realize, I'm not getting what I'm supposed to be getting like in terms of royalties and, and what have you. And it wound up in this big suit, and she claims that she was retaliated against, never had the career she would have had otherwise because she went after some pretty powerful people in the music business. But there's no taking away from what a great song it is and was in the summer of 83. One more time as we leave you tonight with the number one song from this week in 83, on KTSA, Flashdance, what a feeling.
Wrap around. 